You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And we're back again. Where are we voyaging to today, Gavin? I don't remember. You don't remember? Uh, yeah, so... I thought we were going back to Sheboygan, if, as I recall from the last time we were talking about a Sheboygan episode coming up again. Maybe. Am I, am I wrong on that? I don't know. So, Well, you have notes in front of you. I Where know. Where the notes go to? Well, I want to explain this. <laughs> okay. So, for the people at home, here's here's what happened. Eric was gone for like three months to South America, <laughs> and... And I wrote this episode before that. And you can't remember anything about it now? Yeah, I don't I don't remember it anymore because I wrote it and then you know then I went on and I wrote another dozen things. So I don't remember. <laughs> so I've got the notes, so they'll be as big of a surprise to me as they are to you. <laughs> All right, so we have no idea where we're going. We're just jumping. Do you have at least a title, maybe a name that we can we can kind of preface this with? Sure. I will say this is a Milton Lutsky. Okay. How about that? All right, so let's hear about It might Milton. be in Manitowoc? Manitowoc? It might be in Sheboygan. It might be. In, I, I do recall that okay. you said, well, we might be going to Sheboygan. Okay, we'll apparently you know what's going on more than I do. All right. So, all right, well, take her away. Okay. <laughs> Milton Lutsky uh, was born in Liberty, which is in Manitowoc County, uh, to Lewis and Ida Lutsky in 1905. He has one brother named Norman. Kind of give you an idea of the time we're, we're working in here. Born in the early 1900s. In January 1932, when Milton is 26, he marries 16-year-old Lillian. How so, old was he? Just, just for- 26. Okay. Quite a gap there. There's a there's a gap. Uh, 26-year-old marrying a 16-year-old. I mean, in the 30s, maybe that's not that weird, but it sounds kind of bad. It sounds really bad from today's standards. I yeah. think most 26-year-olds would be shot for that, but but yeah, it might have been a little more acceptable back then. So. Yeah. Um, they got married in Waukegan, which is one of those places that you go to when you don't want to get married at home. Uh, <laughs> why do you say that this is i don't know about now maybe this is different but it used to be if you didn't want to get married in your own town the two places you would generally go were either waukegan or menominee michigan i couldn't tell you why those are the two places but those you, you'll see that regularly where people when they elope that's where they go it it, it almost seems like they're just crossing a state line for some reason. Yeah, I don't know if there's some kind of legal thing about that. I'm not sure. but That's interesting. But I can tell you from doing enough genealogy that that's really common. Waukegan and Menominee. I think the reason they did this was because Milton was Lutheran and Lillian was Catholic. I don't know that's the reason, but I'm guessing that's part of it. Because their families probably wouldn't have agreed on a service otherwise. So are you are you speculating that they possibly just did this in secret? I don't know that they did it in secret, but just that the Lutherans wouldn't have gone to a Catholic wedding and the Catholics wouldn't have gone to a Lutheran wedding. Mm-hmm. So they just figured, okay, we'll just go down and do this small wedding and, yeah. and just be like... Why you can't just go to the courthouse, I don't know. But the, 
again, I don't know what the reasons are that people did this. They had one son, Bernard, uh, who was born in Manitowoc County in 1932. The dates on his birth suggest that Lillian would have been pregnant at the time of the wedding, but I don't know that that was the reason, because she would have only been like one month pregnant, and I don't know, I apologize to all the women out there, but I don't know like at one month how obvious it is. is. Yeah, yeah, it could it be that she didn't even realize she was pregnant at the time of getting married, right? Right. So I don't know that that was necessarily the reason. A lot of speculation here. On January 27th, 1935, John All, who is Lillian's brother, and Milton, her husband, happened to be at a dance hall in St. Nazian's. Milton accused All of stealing a bottle of whiskey from him. All tried to walk away, and Milton went berserk on him. When he woke up from being unconscious, All found that he had two black eyes and a head full of bumps. All said that Lutsky was known as a sneaky fighter who picked on smaller men and never fought face-to-face. He was brutal and bloodthirsty. So Milton's got an angry streak. Mm-hmm. Around September 1935, the Lutsky family moved to Sheboygan, and Milton took up work at the Kohler Company. They lived in an upstairs apartment at 912 Logan Avenue which shared a basement with the lower apartment. Again, I'm not exactly sure how that works, but the basement is a common area between the two other areas. On July 24th, 1937, Lillian went to District Attorney John Cashman with swollen eyes and lips and clearly visible finger marks on her neck. Milton was arrested for aggravated assault. The arresting officer said that Milton's wrists were so big that the handcuffs could only be put on the first notch. On June 16, 1938, a year later, Lillian stopped into a Sheboygan tavern, Midges on Michigan Avenue, to look for her husband. The tavern keeper, Elder Heimbecker, said to her, Haven't I seen you before? Milton, who was in the bar, took this as a sign that his wife had been stepping out and had been in the tavern before with another man. In fact, the only time she had been near there was two weeks earlier when she was also looking for her husband. Uh, So pause there for a moment. I don't think this has come up, and I don't know that it will come up, on the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. But Elder Heimbecker um, was actually investigated for uh, gambling as well. Mm -hmm. So not related to this episode at all. But that was a name that, like, jumped out at me. I was like, oh, this guy has come up on, like, when they're doing, like, phone checks on which gamblers are calling who, he comes up on those. <laughs> nice. And anyone who's familiar with Sheboygan knows that Michigan Avenue is still very much like the tavern part of town. Milton and Lillian returned home, picking up their son from Lillian's brother on the way. Back at the house, Milton was in a foul mood, so Lillian hid in the basement with downstairs neighbor Lloyd Lovell, a student. Milton and their son left for an hour or two, so Lillian returned upstairs and napped on the couch. That evening, Milton and Lillian were involved in a quarrel that was witnessed by their five-year-old son. Milton pulled her hair and even kicked her in the face, trying to get her to admit that she had been seeing another man. The fight started at home, but then escalated when Milton drove the three of them to an isolated lover's lane, the three of them meaning their son as well. 
The son was in the car parked on a lonely son was in a car parked on a lonely road north of Sheboygan when he saw his mother shoot his father. According to Lillian, Milton forced her out of the car, struck her and pointed a thirty-eight revolver at her, saying that she would never see daylight again. Lillian instinctively tried to get the gun away, and a shot went off, striking Milton in the stomach. Lillian went for help at a nearby farm. By the time that Milton reached the hospital, he had been dead for 15 minutes already. At the emergency room, Lillian was arrested and handed over the revolver, which was under her coat. The only witness to this is the son, who is five years old. I was just going to say, but he's super young. Yeah, he's super young. And so, right now, the version of the story we hear is that Milton pulls the gun, she kind of tries to pull it away, and the gun goes off. Okay. That's the version of the story we know. Okay. And it's really the only version of the story we're going to hear, because Milton can't talk. And the son isn't, you know, probably old enough taking to, really yeah, great notes about this. Yeah, <laughs> like, they probably can't even really <laughs> ask him. He's probably tra- so traumatized, too. The next morning, Lillian, who's in jail, admits the shooting to the district attorney, claiming self-defense. For a couple of days, she was held without charge. They weren't really sure what to charge her with, but she just shot a, you know, shot a guy. They finally brought her to court on a charge of premeditated murder. The court commissioner was undecided whether or not to grant her bail. Elder Heimbecker, the bartender from earlier, testified about the tavern incident at the preliminary hearing. He said he had made the haven't-I-seen-you-before remark, but quickly realized his mistake in having said that. What he had recalled was not her. What he had recalled was that it was actually Milton who had been in his bar (laughs) with a different woman. Lillian was blonde, and the other woman was a brunette. So in other words, the bartender was confused, and it may have been the husband who was stepping out. I'm using the terms of the time. (laughs) I don't know if anybody says stepping out anymore, but that's the way it was phrased in the paper. You said that she was charged with premeditated murder. Which is, if I understand what premeditated murder is, they're kind of saying that we don't believe your story. Because there's no way it's premeditated murder if he pulls a gun on her and she she defends herself and accidentally shoots him. Absolutely. Okay. You're you're 100% right. Yeah, if it's a if it's a heat of the moment thing, it's not premeditated. If it's an accident, it's not premeditated. For it to be premeditated, she basically would have had to have decided before the car ever left the house that she was going to kill him. Yeah. yeah. Which this story does not sound like that at all. No, that is not the version of the story we're hearing. Yeah. All right. Officer Clarence Pearl testified that after Lillian came to the station, she said she had brought the gun with her from home for self-defense. She had not wrestled it away from her husband, as she had originally reported to the district attorney. The men who had arrived to bring her husband to the hospital uh, were told the same thing by her. The undersheriff said the car and the area around the car showed no sign of a struggle. Lillian did, however, have a bruised eye and disarranged hair. Disarranges in quotes, that's the word the newspaper used. (laughs) I think disarranged is a strange word. Mm -hmm. Disarranged hair to support her claim of self-defense. She pleaded not guilty. So this is where we get the conflicting stories in. Her story is that he went out there to kill her. 
she was able to kind of turn it around on him. These other people are saying that's not the version of the story that she told us, and the scene in the crime doesn't show that there was any kind of a fight. There's a, there's a discrepancy here. August 8th, 1938. Jury selection took relatively little time, and the trial began at 2 o'clock the same day. Charles Kopp was the prosecutor, with Herbert Humkey and Arthur Gruel for the defense. Kopp said that he would show that the shooting was premeditated, and despite what might be good reasons, a person cannot take the law into their own hands. The defense said that Milton was a sadist and a bloodthirsty individual who enjoyed watching weaker persons suffer. The defense said Lillian had probably been beat up a hundred times, was threatened with death, and was told she should die in childbirth. In fact, Lillian was pregnant at the time of the shooting, with the baby due in October. The defense of Milton was so brutal that on one occasion he punched out his own mother and chased her with a butcher knife. Wow. Milton and his brother had a reputation as dance hall fighters, meaning they would go out to dances and uh, then just start having... Fights? Yeah, just (laughs) wild fights. Okay. Finally, the defense said that they had discovered the identity of the East Side brunette that Milton was seeing at the time, who had since dyed her hair red to avoid publicity. After the opening statements, the jury was brought to the lover's lane to see the scene of the crime. Which, you know, by this time, there's nearly no evidence there, but just to kind of give them an idea of where it happened. Mrs. Lewis Lutsky, Milton's mother, was called to testify, but was dismissed almost immediately because she would not stop crying. The defense attorney said that he thought this was a planned outburst. The prosecutor said he had no idea what happened. Darlene Lutsky, Milton's 11-year-old niece, testified that she saw Lillian hide the revolver in the car weeks before the shooting. Did she plan to have the gun ready on her weeks in advance? Upon further questioning, she admitted that she saw no such thing and was told by her father to say it. Mrs. Lewis Lutsky returned to the stand the next day. She told a story that four weeks before the shooting, Milton had returned home and his bedroom door was locked. Milton's mother told a story that four weeks earlier, before the shooting, Milton had returned to his home and found his bedroom door locked. He had told Lillian to open up, and she cracked the door just enough to point out a revolver and threatened to shoot him. And I make a, I have a little note to myself on here, in parentheses. This sounds like hearsay to me, and I have no idea why it was admitted. <laughs> uh, I'm not an attorney, but I think like her repeating a story that her son had told her I don't think you can say say that that. in court. (laughs) Like, she didn't see it happen, and there's nobody else to back it up. You might be able to say that, though, in, like, closing arguments or opening arguments or something. I don't know, but that's that's sketchy to me, because Mm -hmm. you can say any story you want. There's nothing that they could do about it. But one of the last people to testify was Lillian herself. She told the court, I grabbed for the gun and hung onto it with both hands. We fell. He was choking me with one hand at the time. And then the gun went off. For closing arguments, the prosecutor stressed that there was another woman 
and this had made Lillian angry. He further stressed that defense's version of how the gun went off made no sense with the way that the bullet hit its target. There was no accident, there was no dropped gun, the gun was pointed and fired deliberately. The defense said that Lillian had an unblemished record, and Milton was a man of brutality. Furthermore, the defense said, I have more respect for a Dillinger than I would have for a man of Milton Lutsky's character. He showed the jury Lillian's coat and dress from the night of the murder and pointed out the pockets were too small to hide a revolver. Any shooting was not planned. The mastermind behind the whole affair is Norman Lutsky, brother of the deceased. The whole story, the state's whole case, was fabricated by Norman Lutsky from start to finish. Which is at least supported by the fact that he had his daughter lie on the stand, so got that going for it. The other defense attorney gets to make a closing statement. I guess if you get two attorneys, you get two closing closing statements. statements. (laughs) Yeah. He says, Milton Lutsky was a sadist. After the episode at the gravel pit, during which he beat Mrs. Lutsky severely, he sat by his prey until morning. I'm not really sure, you know, what this is referencing. This must be something earlier in the trial. He said that he wished the state had allowed him to call the son but it was denied because it would evoke too much sympathy. Quote, I got to love that little toe-headed fellow, and so would you. Weird, weird phrase. Um, and that's, again, I don't know the law on that, but that's weird to me that they're not allowed to even call him because, because the jury would be, like, too emotionally moved by it. It's a, it's a really weird thing. It is weird, but I I can definitely see why it would be. But I mean, if he had fact, if they could prove that he had evidence to state something, then I don't see why they could even legally like say no. Yeah, I don't know. It, you know what I mean? I don't know. And even at five years, I mean, five is young, but it's not that young. young. Like if they had, if they treated him, you know, they weren't like aggressive with him on the stand. I'm sure he could tell that his dad was not nice. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. I'm sure that that wasn't a secret. It sounds like everybody knew. So having the actual child confirm that I think would have been helpful. But the prosecutor returned for a quick rebuttal saying the proper way to deal with a bad husband is divorce. Even a bad man must not be killed in cold blood, he said. That's that's his argument. His prosecutor is really making the point here. You can get beat up a hundred times and that's not okay but it doesn't make it okay for you to then murder the guy. Right. There's other ways of dealing with it. So he's like, the the law is the law. On the evening of August 10th, after a brisk three-day trial, pretty short for a murder trial, Judge Detling turned over the case to the jury. He gave a very lengthy instruction, explaining the differences between homicide, self-defense, manslaughter, and so forth. He reminded the jury that Lillian Lutsky was the only one present at the shooting who was alive to testify. Therefore, her testimony was important, but she was also the defendant, and if other testimony contradicted her, that should be taken into account. This, again, I don't know the exact wording, but I like the way the judge handled this here. Mm -hmm. I like that he explained, if you don't want to find her guilty of premeditated murder, here's some lesser things and what they mean. And then explain that 
you know, even though she's the only one who can describe the scene, you got to keep in mind that she's got reasons she might not be completely <laughs> be forthcoming. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like that he was able to kind of guide them through that in sort of a neutral way. The jury left for deliberations. They were out a short time, two hours, which included a 45-minute dinner break. Wow. Yeah. So basically an hour and 15 minutes. They voted unanimously on the first ballot. What did they choose, Eric? I'm going to go with guilty, I guess. Guilty, you guess. That's not very confident. No, I'm not very confident. I'm going to be honest with you because it's it's really up in the air. Okay. They decided not guilty. Okay, see, I was totally wrong. Yeah. When Judge Detling read the verdict handed to him by the foreman, the people in attendance cheered and applauded and then crowded around Lillian to offer congratulations. I'm picturing that in my mind. I'm like, I think they kind of frown on that. (laughs) (laughs) You got away with it. Well, Well, I'm I'm not going to say that she did it, but... I mean, it's a it's an emotional moment, but I think generally the court really frowns on, <laughs> yeah, on like people celebrating. celebrating in court like that. Lillian addressed the media, quote, I'm the happiest girl in all the world. Now I am finally free of everything. It's such a great load taken off my back. Believe me, these months in jail were no fun, and I'm certainly glad the trial is over. Now I am going back to stay at the homes of mother and dad and my sister. I want lots of sunshine. But I got plenty of rest up in jail. I'm just dying to get home to see my little Bernie. That's the trial. A uh, couple couple extra things after that. But uh, if you want to jump in at any point, you can. Well, did, did she end up having the second child? She did. Okay. She did. The second child uh, is Ronald Lutzke, who was born in November 1938. Never met his father. Uh, so, yeah, during trial, she was pregnant and then gave, gave birth to the son, so... And uh, what ended up happening to her? To her, uh, Lillian remarried at some point to a man named Edwin Seraki. Uh, he owned the Log Cabin Tavern in Newton, which is also Manitowoc County. He passed away in 1967, age 58. Lillian passed away in 1989 in Manitowoc at age 74. Uh, she's actually buried under the name Lillian Lutsky, so... She's under her first husband's, husband's last name, name, not her second husband's last name. That's kind of weird, huh? It's kind of weird considering that, you know, you don't really want to be associated with that guy. But but it, then again, it's also, it's going to be her son's last right, name. So right. that would probably be the explanation it's of her, why. It's her kid's name. So that, that they might have done that. Yeah. So, I don't know. What do you think of this one? Do you have a, a feeling on it? Uh... You know, I don't know. It's it's tough. I obviously I don't know any more than what anybody else knows. Like I have no special insight here. But I tend to think this was not a premeditated situation. I tend to think that because if this went the way that I think that it went. The husband drove them out to the deserted area. So if it's premeditated, it's it's like she'd have to know that at some point they were going to be driven to an isolated location. She's not the one that drove them there. 
Right. So it's weird where they're like on a, in a dead end road, and she's like, "Finally, that gun is <laughs> in the glove compartment all this time." That, um, is, that is a very good point. So I, I mean, it's possible, and certainly it wouldn't surprise me in the least if you know, even if she never intended to murder him, that she would have thought about it. I certainly think it would be unusual, like to be beat up repeatedly and not have thoughts of wanting to hurt the other person, you know, even if you never act on them, because, like, you're going to be upset. Like, I'd be shocked if you weren't upset. And I guess if you think about it for me, I don't know, did they, I might have missed this, did they say the gun, so the gun was in the glove box, based on what they know? I I believe that's where it was. Who owned the gun? Was it her or him? I don't know. And that's a really good question. Because it almost seems like maybe that it didn't, I'm going to, if I had to speculate, I would say maybe it didn't play out the way she told it. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe she made herself seem more like a burden or a victim than she was in that specific situation. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they went out there and she knew bad things was going to happen. So she went for the gun and ended up killing him. And it wasn't like a struggle and, and, you know, like she was more or less doing self-defense. Right. So, so yeah, I think that maybe it didn't quite play out the way it is, but I think you're probably right. That is a very good point. How do you get somebody to drive you out to a place so you can murder them? Yeah. That seems like a, a stretch to get make that happen. Yeah. Not to say that it couldn't happen, because maybe this is a place where, <laughs> I mean, maybe she had been beaten out on this road a hundred times it yeah you know what i mean like that's, maybe that's part of his routine was when he was upset he took you out on this road and beat the crap out of you that's possible you know yeah i mean and there's always more as as you know listeners know i primarily rely on newspaper accounts and i kind of fleshed out with a few other things but i have not seen the original police reports or court records in this case so there's obviously a lot more that was in the record than what i've seen and would probably answer some of those questions, but I don't have them. And uh, if people are super interested, you know, maybe I'll go look at them or something. I don't know. <laughs> but but otherwise, but but mostly I try to get these stories kind of mm-hmm. quickly through. But if people, if we have a clamoring, if we get like emails being like, please revisit that with more evidence. <laughs> be like, okay, I can do that. The other thing I found interesting <laughs> that you talked about in there is, is that, okay, so the bartender... She walks into the bar to find her husband. Yeah. And he's like, have I seen you here before? Yeah. But then he later said, oh, no, it wasn't her that was in here. It was him with another guy. Another, another that, woman. Yeah, or another woman. I'm sorry. Yeah. That seems, be really interesting if it was another guy. It, that just seems <laughs> weird to me. Because it's not like she came in with him, right? Right. So, like, how do you make that confusion? Or just because she, I she, don't know. I it's the way that was phrased is really weird. I wonder if like if she said, "Have you seen my husband so and so?" and then he was like, "Oh, have I haven't I seen you before?" Thinking like, "Oh, I've already seen, seen somebody him with, with him. him." Yeah, I don't know, but like that's not the way that it was phrased. Yeah, it was phrased like he like she came in, he didn't know. Who she was even looking for was already like, oh, I've seen you here before. Yeah. Um. So it, it's weird. But, yeah. 
and and generally so yeah i i'm on the wife's side here first of all i'm obviously on the wife's side because she's taken this terrible situation you know she, she's she's the victim here mm-hmm. like flat out she's the victim here and i suspect that this has been the case all along from the very beginning when he's 26 and she's 16 again maybe that was acceptable 100 years ago but now like i look at that and she's already entering into a situation where he's got power over her right and that's that's not great mm-hmm. you know and uh, you know and somebody might be like well you know back then like husbands had the job so they they always had power over their wives yeah i know i know i get it but i'm talking more like you know when you're when you're 16 like i don't care how mature you are at 16 you're not an adult and yeah and you're not you're not ready to stand up to uh i don't know as you, you can use the argument that oh well back then 16 year olds were much more mature yeah but no there is no 16 year old today that is ready to stand up to a 26 year old I mean, no. you know, it's it, the 26-year-old is probably going to have the upper hand in almost any argument, any type of confrontual situation. Yeah, That's so I... terrible wording. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I take, I take her side. And, you know, and again, I don't... What happened in the exact moment, I don't know. But I'm willing to accept... I'm, I think I'm along the same lines as the jury here. I'm willing to accept that self-defense... It may be not an accident, but at least self-defense is a very possible thing that happened. Yeah. And if we're going to go off of the idea that you're supposed to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't know how seriously people take that in court, but if that's supposed to be the standard, I don't think they proved premeditated beyond a reasonable doubt here because there's plenty of doubt to allow self-defense in this case. Yeah, in... And it's really hard for us to say because what you had there is not a not a ton of evidence. It's not it, a ton it, of evidence, but it, but for that what happened, you know, within those five minutes or whatever, there is no evidence. Yeah, I suppose so. They probably didn't have very much concrete evidence to yeah. to show it. So other than her testimony, and I mean, yeah, really, what? And I guess the scene, the scene is whatever they found at the scene was. The only evidence they would really have, right? Yeah, so. and and they, and there, the state says, "Oh, the ground isn't messed up enough for you to have been fighting." <laughs> Which I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming like it's a dirt road. Yeah, <laughs> but I still like that's a weird thing to say. Like, oh, you couldn't have been fighting that bad. The road's not messed up. Like, okay. But at the same, in the same time, I, when you talked about she did have some scratches and stuff on her, yeah. but it wasn't significant. No. Which it is brings around to the point is towards the end when they were doing closing arguments. And again, from my understanding of, of how a court works, and you can correct me if I have this wrong, but okay. in closing arguments, they don't really have to tell you the truth at all. But... But they like uh, there's it's very I mean, very they're not loot. supposed to lie, but 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 they can definitely interpret the evidence in a very different way, right? Know? And and they were just making it sound like this guy was palm palm. It's something you said was one of the guys was just like this guy was a heinous had just beat her heinously, mm-hmm. and it's like when I look at I hear that and then I hear the 
the earlier when you said the the yeah. wounds he, she had, it doesn't sound like this guy ever got the opportunity to just beat the living and crap. I, and I would agree with that. I would say on the final occasion, she wasn't beat up as bad as in previous occasions. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. So there's just a but whole lot of questionable stuff. There, in there is. There is. I guess long story short, you know, maybe like again, maybe there's pieces here that like I don't have. But based on what I do have, if I was on the jury, I'd probably make the same choice they did. did yeah. yeah. So, interesting. All right. Well, do you got anything else for this? Or? I have just one little tiny piece left, and that's uh, Lillian's son, Bernard, the, the first son. Okay. Graduated from Valder's High School in 1950. He served in the Korean War. Then he went to Marquette University, where he received a bachelor's degree in history and a law degree. For 40 years, he was an attorney in West Dallas. According to his obituary, he wrote a brief in a Michigan court case that changed the laws of Michigan. It does not specify how, and I couldn't find it. So I don't know what laws that he got altered in court. Bernard was a devoted Catholic, and following his death in 2009, was buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in Milwaukee. Um, his brother Ronald, not quite as distinguished. <laughs> not a bad guy. Okay. okay. Not, a, not a bad guy, but just. But so we're not going to spend the next fifteen minutes talking about his rap sheet or anything. No, 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 no. He was. I mean, he's perfectly fine. He was, you know, lived a full life. Was was gainfully employed. Good guy, but you know, whoever wrote his obituary didn't make it quite as glowing. So, <laughs> so I'm not. I'm sure I'm sure Ronald was awesome, but whoever wrote Ronald's obituary really sold him short on that one. <laughs> but Bernard apparently really went on to some great things despite a kind of a rocky start in life. So Right. But he, you never found anything about him speaking about what happened that day or anything like that, huh? No. That would be interesting to see like if later on in his life he came out and kind of disclosed what he remembered from that day, if anything. Yeah. And I, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's in the back seat of the car just hiding. I don't know. Yeah, or and or, or just completely did not understand what was happening at the time. So he's like, if people asked him, he would just be like, I don't really know what to tell you, man. Yeah. It was five, <laughs> you know? So, all right. With that, we can wrap this episode up. We thank everybody for their continued support of this podcast. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. And again, thank you all for tuning in. Yeah, I just real quick want to say that uh, the next episode is our first and so far only listener submitted episode. Ooh. Uh, we had a listener who actually wrote a story out, says I can use it as long as I give him credit. So I'll make slight modifications. So we do it in like the format we normally do. But I have a pre written one uh, for next time. <laughs> And then I've I've even got two more ready to go after that. I'm way ahead on this podcast right now. So everybody because keep Eric that. was going to South America for three months. <laughs> everybody keep that in mind too. Gavin is allowing fans to submit stories, so you could yeah. be the next story to submit. So I mean, if you just point me in the direction of a story, I can research and write it myself. But if you're going to turn in the whole thing, I mean, that's cool too. He supports that 100%. Yeah. So. <laughs> I just can't put it on the website after then. That's the only difference. Well, you could, but you just have to cite that person. I'm not going to do that though. So I'm not going to put something... Website's like my stuff. It's weird putting someone else's <laughs> thing on there. Fair enough. All right, with that, we'll be back in two weeks with that 
fan-submitted episode. So thank you again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.